All content on this channel is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as professional financial advice. Should you need such advice, please consult a licensed financial or tax advisor. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of information on this channel. So like if we're going to start, if we're starting, starting, uh, I think almost everybody probably knows what Airbnb is. Do we want to cover loosely what they offer? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. Everybody's heard of Airbnb. They like, if I had to put my own spin on it, I like, but everybody knows that, you know, you just rent stuff or you rent houses or whatever um, or hotel rooms when you're on vacation for Airbnb. But I mean, if you think about like what they really, really do, the biggest thing in my mind that I think is a good sign, good thing for them is like through their like demand aggregation platform or being actually, I should probably call it a supply aggregation and demand aggregation platform. They're basically transforming real estate all around the world at scale. And uh, that's quite remarkable because if you think about the way traditional hotel businesses have been run, you can't add new capacity without this really long buildup period. You got to go to get permits and then build like 300 unit place somewhere. And it takes you a few couple of years maybe and a lot of money. And then now you got a new hotel and then you got to rent it out to people, right? It takes a long time to build capacity if you're a regular traditional hotel. But Airbnb, for them to add capacity, all they have to do is convince the host to create a profile, here you go. And then boom, they've got capacity. They don't have to like, like put up any money because all the real estate already exists and people just need to be empowered to run their own mini little businesses and add it to this Airbnb empire of properties. And have you stayed, have you stayed in Airbnb before? I have. Yeah. Um, mm. Twice. How and, was your experience? And, and I, I, I'd, I'd also like, I'm curious to hear about your, your experiences as well. So, um, to my, my, one of my experiences was I have a friend who, uh, got married in Tahoe and, um, I attended the wedding along with a bunch of other college friends and we ended up Airbnb uh, this like weird, like German Bavarian, uh, themed, uh, ski lodge place in the off season. Um, there was some weird stuff in there, like taxidermy things and like, I don't know, just this gen- general like uh, yeah, quirky feel. But it was a beautiful place and it was a reasonable price and there was a lot of room and I, I felt like I had a good time and it wasn't like the kind of sterile generic uh, experience that some people actually really love that you would get Um, out of just renting a normal hotel room. I mean, this is like literally somebody's residence with all of its quirks and weirdnesses and things like that. So that was one experience. 
And overall, I felt pretty positive on that. The, um, and, and sometimes the, the, the crazy thing is that it's not even really the Airbnb itself that makes or break your experience. It's really who you're with. So like part of my perceptions or my memories or of that experience are not simply colored by just how go good or bad the Airbnb was. It was just having a chance or opportunity to hang out with like old college friends and um, kind of relive, relive some good times at a later, later date than you know, the college years. And uh, the second time that I, I, I was at an Airbnb, it was in... When, when the family and I were doing, um, the extended family and I were doing a, um, a trip through Europe and uh, we were going to stay, I think a couple of nights near Vatican City. Um, and this was during Christmas time. And you know, <laughs> the supply of hotels around the Vatican City around Christmas time is already limited, but even more so during Christmas time. So it was basically impossible to book any standard hotels around that time. And my um, sister-in-law um, was able to find this like apartment right outside of Vatican City, just some Italian dude's apartment, very nice, kind of like on the second story of a building, which, but it had this like fantastic view of the, the, the St. Peter's uh, Basilica and just, like was amazing in the fact that it was just like this cozy little space. And um, we ended up getting like takeout pizza and Italian food and eating it in like the narrow little galley kitchen um, of that place. And I'll always remember that place just because it was like quirky and strange. And like, it was like, it felt like a home, but like not our home. And I felt like it had a lot of like different little amenities that we wouldn't have gotten if we had stayed at a standard hotel or we would have had to pay a lot, lot more for if we were staying in a standard hotel, including that great view of uh, St. Peter's. Um, the only drawback was that, I don't know if it's, if the host himself was just terrible um, or if it was the, the fact that it was like the Christmas time, it was like busy, but basically we got off our train or whatever in, um, Rome, uh, in, 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 in near, um, St. Peter's. And we were like, we, we got to the, 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 the Airbnb and we were supposed to like meet the host there so he could transfer the keys and he wasn't there. And so we're like standing outside in the cold for like, it felt like forever. Maybe it was 30 minutes, maybe it was 45 minutes, maybe it was an hour, like kind of texting the guy and exchanging messages back and forth. And he was like, I'm coming soon, I'm sorry. I would say this in Italian accent, but I can't really do it that well. <laughs> you know. And it just took a while for him to like make his way across the city and finally hand us our keys, which was kind of annoying. But other than that, the entire experience was, was great and unique. <laughs> You never listed a place on Airbnb. No, I've never listed a place on Airbnb. So okay. I've never been a host. If we were serious podcast hosts, we would have put <laughs> one of our homes up to That's... test the full platform. Uh, I mean, I have a pool. I could. I don't know. If we could just Airbnb <laughs> a pool. Yeah. yeah, you definitely could. By the way, your place would be a huge premium right now during COVID. I've seen people uh, Airbnb their Teslas and just yeah. 
there is a there's a that's funny there's a um airbnb for swimming pools like you just said you don't stay in the house you just come use the pool really i forgot what it's called yeah i forgot what it's called there's a name for it uh we we were actually looking at something like that just being stuck in our house at the end of the summer but uh yeah that does exist too uh you you like it you you just between your tesla and your swimming pool you're just perfectly a position (laughs) i've got so many uh unused assets that i need to (laughs) yeah you're really just sitting on a gold mine yeah earning their keep you know (laughs) yeah what about you what airbnb experiences have you had had a bunch and they've all been fairly positive. I've never had a, you know, an issue. There's always been little things, you know, like you're waiting for the keys. I've had similar situations about, you know, the fire detectors are, none of them have batteries. It's like, well, that's a problem, you know, or like (laughs) we showed up once and like this, it was gross, you know, like they, they hadn't done the laundry properly, but I think that's the difference between a lot of these are, are managed, you know, they are like basically full-time Airbnb properties and some of them are somebody's home that they rent out seasonally or once in a while or whatever, you know, you can tell the difference between a professional, uh, you know, they have a professional cleaner and a professional, you know, host or whatever, who manages a couple of the properties. Like you can usually tell what the situation is, but um, yeah, I mean, on the whole, just at a value level, I always feel like we get good value. The, the places are nice. They're in the right locations that you want. Less uh, cookie cutter, which I, I like, and I think does does set you up for a better experience, a more memorable experience. So, yeah, I haven't really had any, you know, net negative experiences. Some better than others, but on the whole, they've all been pretty good. What um, what percentage of the family trips that you take end up going to Airbnb versus just a standard hotel? That's a good one. So I don't think the issue, um, you know, I, I think the last place we went, uh, we went to, I went to Tennessee with the family in the summer and I don't, I think we used VRBO um, and not Airbnb. So there, there are some competitors. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think for a family trip, I don't think we've ever really done a hotel for an extended period of time for more than a night. Right. Like wow. I, when I'm dri- driving across the country, we're doing, we'll do a hotel. My friend actually works at, um, you know, the graduate hotels. It's like a brand. Uh, it's a boutique hotel brand. Uh, mm. They're in Chicago. Now they're based in Nashville. So if it's boutique, uh, I wouldn't have heard of it. Yeah. Um, they're great. And those hotels are incredible. Uh, so I stayed, I've stayed at a couple of those. Mm-hmm. Those are an experience in and of themselves. It's kind of a unique experience to be there. They're very thoughtful on the design and the history of where you are. They're all very regional. So they're kind of, uh, you know, they're kind of cool to go to. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of those things where like, if let's say they were the same price and I could take a night at a nice graduate hotel versus an Airbnb, I, I might do the hotel. But generally, if you're talking about like a Marriott or a Hilton hotel or finding an Airbnb and I'm going to be there for more than a night with the family. It's almost always an Airbnb. Right. Right. That's interesting. And when you, if you're in a situation where you're seriously considering Airbnb or even like the VRBO or maybe the bookings.com, because I think those are the big competitors. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, in my mind, I face the Netflix problem when trying to decide on a place you know, like you go into the Netflix home screen and there's all these um, titles and you like get into this like feedback or this like rabbit hole of trying to figure out which place is the best because you're just trying to like optimize for price and then the location and then 
um, you know, the convenience and the amenities and what the pictures look like and how sketchy do you think this person is versus, yeah. and then you could like, you, I could literally spend 45 minutes of my time, like looking at stuff and then not coming to a decision. Right. <laughs> and um, that hurts me deeply. And so I know for me, I would end up probably off outsourcing that decision-making to my wife, just say, I trust you, just like figure out something and uh, I'll just, just go with it, right? But for you, do you end up, do you, do you end up, who, who makes a decision about where to go? Do you do it with your wife? Do you do it yourself? Does your wife do it? Like, how does that look for you? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think for, for the Nashville trip, um, or not Nashville, uh, when we were in or we're in Tennessee, we were near Nashville, I forgot the name, um, Gatlinburg, right? So there were, you know, we were looking for very specific things. You set your filters. I was getting different results than she was getting. Places were popping on and popping off. So we both were kind of, you know, wasting time. <laughs> we, we were both in the same rabbit hole, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and to your point, that does take a lot of time. And it's hard to know, you know, I, I even actually, I remember I booked a place and the guy canceled it right after. No. Like, oh, I should I shouldn't have listed this. Like, you know, we're we're not prepared for COVID stuff. And I was like, okay. Okay. But it was annoying because like we were looking for a place with a pool that was close enough to this and had enough beds and had the space and everything else. And so, like, you know, with a hotel, you kind of know what you're getting, you know, like this mm-hmm. many rooms, th- these amenities, that's what's available. Um, and with an Airbnb, you don't you don't really know. It's like sometimes you have access to things, but they're not actually included. They mm-hmm. tell you, you know, you can you can use, you know, you can use the bicycles and you get there and they're like completely smashed up or unusable. And like, <laughs> you just, you just don't know. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, we, I think between the two of us, we both spent a lot of time. I think we ended up going with a place. I don't remember who found it, but we just, we made lists. We added, we took things off the list based on, you know, all the parameters, but mm-hmm. to be honest, I don't mind that. It's kind of like shopping, you know, okay. like sometimes, you know, you want to poke around and shop if you're, if you're going to enjoy it. Right. It's yeah. not like, it's not like shopping for, uh, you know, a dentist or something. It's, it's more like something you actually want to do. Uh, so, you know, you want to find the best place. And, you know, sometimes uh, it's, it's funny. So we were driving, right? We were driving cross country to Boston uh, and we were, we stopped in Niagara Falls um, in Buffalo um, on the New York side. And we were thinking like, maybe we should just, you know, hotels are so cheap right now. You know, like our room, you know, we got like a uh, two bed standard room, whatever. It's like 50 bucks and you could be anywhere. I mean, we were, we were at like, you know, uh, uh, Wyndham or something like, it's not, not a, not a, like a red roof in like a decent hotel chain, still 50, 60 bucks. I was like, why don't you ask for like the presidential suite at the Hilton? It's going to be like $120. Like, why don't we just do that? It would be really fun. The kids would love it. Maybe it's got a hot tub in the room or something. Right. And like, despite being at 10% occupancy, none of these places have experiences in the hotel really right unless you're in like vegas or you're in new york or whatever if you're not in a major city like you're not going to get an experience and i was thinking on the way i was like you know if i had a little more time to plan if we knew we were going to do this stop i could have found a really cool airbnb potentially for around the same price you know maybe a little bit more maybe 250 bucks or something but like that could have had an indoor pool for all i know right who knows what you can find on airbnb so like I do think there's, and, and that's certainly going to continue. I mean, we should talk about general, you know, macro economy and, and trends of people traveling and staying places, especially post COVID. But like, I do think there's a lot of appeal to the infinite variety you can find on Airbnb versus what you're going to find in the hotel world. You know, that's very interesting because I harp on 
how hard it is for me to make a decision, but you flipped it around on its head and said that actually, no, it's a great thing because you find- Yeah, it's a you problem, Gil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my problem, yeah. No, but you're saying that it's a good thing in the sense that the experiences that you can get at an Airbnb are uh, so unique that uh, it's very difficult for a standardized hotel chain to provide that kind of experience. And if you are looking for that kind of experience, there's really very few other options, I would say trusted options um, that could provide that. Like I haven't myself poked around on VRBO um, or bookings.com, but I feel like whatever their positioning is, they're more like an, like literally uh, a blind aggregator um, of hotel supply of, or of room supply um, or of house supply um, rather than what Airbnb, Airbnb is trying to do, which is not just provide the um, place for you to sleep in, but to also provide a feeling. And the key word is a feeling, um, a feeling that you're not just sleeping in a room, but you have somebody who's looking out for you, um, taking care of you, like helping guide you to enjoy your stay. Um, and that feeling of being hosted, of being taken care of, or having somebody like a warm, inviting presence, making sure that your stay is pleasant and enjoyable. Um, yeah. It's very different. I'm doing, you know, again, trying to value the business. Like you said, the, the math, the numbers is actually, numbers are easy to look at. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you got to do a little projection work, just, you know, what is, how, how bad was this year and how much of that can you write off and how quickly will this recovery be? But, you know, that, that's, a, you're talking about a, a six to 12 month question, not a five-year question. Right? Yeah. So I think generally this business is very healthy. Um, but I want to dive in, I, I guess maybe I'll ask you first, do you want to talk about, I want to go through kind of pros and cons of the business. But I also want to talk about general market trends. So like this is another one of those cases, right? The, the company IPO'd what on the 10th at yeah, $68 like a that. share, right? They're not yeah. profitable. Yeah. <laughs> it's up 150% since the IPO. Yeah. It's trading uh, they're not profitable. $150 right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's trading like a tech stock. Yeah. And, and this is not, you know, this is another one. We talked Palantir. We did. They're up, what, 40, 50% since they IPO'd. There's yeah. some other big IPOs, right? DoorDash, everyone's talking about. That's up uh, close to 100%, I think, or 80, yeah. 80 to 100%. Yeah. Um, C3 AI is a big one. I did some work uh, around that sector uh, at my day job. They're up almost 150%. Mm -hmm. uh, Snowflake is another famous one. They're up over 100% since their IPO. These are all this year. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this this scares me a little bit just, just from like a bubble mindset. This, this feels like I'm sure what it felt like in 99 or whatever, when like any company with that platform play in the tech ecosystem with everyone being so growth minded kind of gets inflated. And, and even yeah. if it's a good business, like how much risk are you taking at, at a price point like this when you're already up 150% from the IPO, uh, you know, at, at this price, right? I, ju I just think the valuation is a problem and, and we can get more into it. I have more to say, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, it is, it, it is a problem. Um, I think that valuations right now um, with all of that, those data points that you've raised are stretched. Even something like, you know, in the EV space, which I pay a lot of attention to, Nikola Motors, 
like which basically is a Photoshop of a potential <laughs> car. It was what? What is Ouch. it? It was worth over thirty billion dollars. You know. Yeah. And uh, two days ago, uh, you know, it was trading down to whatever it was like ten ten billion dollars. Um, GM dumped the deal with them, and you know, the, the, there was one day where I looked at the stock and it was up twenty percent, all because J.P. Morgan like put a positive report out on it. So it's a little frothy. I think that um, there are a lot of people who might not have lived through um, multiple cycles of boom and bust um, who are entering this market um, thinking that maybe stocks only go up and live their lives as if that's um, some sort of physical law written to the universe. And the challenge is that, you know, if you're a little older, you'll realize that stocks don't always go up. Now, the biggest challenge is that if you take a step back and look at where interest rates are right now, um, they're very low. I believe um, they're below 2% now. And I remember in 1999, I remember looking at an article that Warren Buffett wrote in 1999. I think it might've been in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, I can't remember. Um, but he was talking about how um, interest rates had gone from, well, well, interest rates in 1999 were around 6%, which seems super high to us in these times, right? But he was talking about how, well, you know, interest rates act like gravity for stocks. And if you cut the interest rate, basically you're cutting, it's as if you're weakening the strength of gravity to hold anything down. Um, and he mentioned that, you know, he, it, wouldn't, it would not be unreasonable if you cut interest rates from 6 to 3% for stock prices to double. That's just because it's the way interest rates work. And we are far below the 3% mark right now for interest rates. So um, if you're seeing stuff that's doubling, you have to ask yourself, is that evidence of a bubble or is it evidence of the type of loosening of gravity that the Federal Reserve can achieve um, once it cuts interest rates to the bone and is committed to staying the course um, with that particular move. And for the foreseeable future, it looks like the Federal Reserve is committed to keeping interest rates low, which is why investors feel super comfortable in lifting stocks to the moon. If interest rates were to rise, I think the reverse procedure would happen, but there's no evidence or signals that that's about to happen um, in the near-term future. I mean, instead, like if you look at the news articles, what we're doing is more quantitative easing, right? There's a additional stimulus um, being debated in the uh, halls of Congress right now. So, I mean, if you look at those things and ask yourself, like, is the market uh, moving upwards because we're in a bubble or is the market moving upwards because interest rates are, are lower and money's got to go somewhere to chase yield? I think the answer is a little bit closer to um, the, the latter, which is that interest rates have cut lower.
and money has got to like find any place that they can to find yield. And sometimes um, you go chasing for yield in the future, which is why growth stocks um, get pushed so high in this type of situation. But is it a bubble? Is it completely like untethered from reality? Is it completely irrational? And I would say, no, it's not completely irrational. There is a rationale driving these people to pay higher multiples for growth stocks. Yeah, um, I mean, you're, yeah. you'd have to say though, I mean, again, there's, there's still gotta be a limit there, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I pay a higher multiple. You can't yeah. pay, I mean, we're talking about, what is it? Hold on. If it's a hundred billion, their earnings in 2020, it'll be 4,000 times earnings. Right. For right, 2020 right. Or, yeah, or about yeah. 2000 times 2019 yeah. earnings. I mean, that's um, what you're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly. That, even if you're projecting healthy growth and, and better operating margin, that's insane. I, I think, right. Like yeah. interest rates or not, that's, that's a, that's a wild story. I mean, that's true. If you look at um, a basket of stocks in 1999, um, all of them were um, highly priced. Um, and the if you include the bas- in the basket a bunch of survivors, let's say, let's call it um, Amazon, um, Microsoft, uh, Qualcomm, um, and then let's put in one that we know that it wouldn't have survived. Uh, I don't know. Uh, webvan.com or something like that, right? I, yeah. There's a whole bunch of other ones. You can pick a lot. Yeah. You, if you had been paying any price at all for a webvan.com, even if it was $1 or $100 or $500, it was overpriced at any of those things because the business was destined to, to, to fail. Um, and so there were a bunch of just really what I would call crappy companies that never were going to work, but people were just buying them up in 1999. And there was no price at which you would have made money, right? Right. And, and that's certainly not the case here. And there's, well, I mean, there, there might be some companies like that out there today. But I don't think those are the ones that we're talking about. We're talking yeah. about good businesses yeah. that I think are getting bundled into now, know, some of the... If you look at if you look at some of the other companies like Amazon um, or Qualcomm or Microsoft, let's take Microsoft, for example, because I think that's a good one. Microsoft, you would, could argue was overpriced in 1999. And um, did it go bankrupt? No, Microsoft was never gonna go bankrupt. Did you have to suffer for about 10 years where Microsoft stock basically dipped below, significantly below where it was trading in 1999 and then bumped up but stayed at close to the same price that you were paying for it in 1999, which means that you got zero returns um, for like, let's say 10 years up until about 2010. Um, Like, so an investor would have had to suffer through a lot of, like a decade of what I would call subpar returns where Microsoft essentially did nothing. It didn't collapse terribly, but it also didn't give you the returns that you thought it would give you in 1999. But something changed maybe around the 2011 timeframe um, to the fast forward to 2020 today for Microsoft. If you look at the trajectory, it is 
a completely different animal, it has like provided excellent returns. I think maybe 30% compounded annually, something like that from the 2010 timeframe to the 2020 timeframe. So what I'm really arguing by talking about this is saying that you could have identified Microsoft as a superior business in 1999 and you would have been correct. The prices paid for Microsoft in during that time were probably too high relative to what its um, eventual growth rate would be for the next decade. So you would have had to suffer holding through that stock for a decade before finally seeing world beating returns starting in 2010. And you know, part of that might have to do with like the CEO, um, Balmer stayed on at Microsoft probably far too long before handing the reins over to uh, Satya Nadella. And Satya Nadella is just a genius. He's a rock star. And as soon as they switched over to him, you could see that, that you know, Microsoft got into the cloud. They were earning money. They were really going into the forefront as opposed to being reactive. And everything changed for Microsoft. So that, could, that, that kind of dynamic was there. But also, you could argue that it was overpriced in 1999. And the same thing with Qualcomm. Like, you, in 1999, when it reached its peak, I think you would have waited something like 10, 15 years before uh, Qualcomm surpassed its previous highs. And, um, you know, Amazon um, was way, way overpriced in 1999 relative to uh, what its uh, 1998 earnings were, right? But, and you would have suffered because there was a market crash in 2002 after the, just to work off the um, overhang of the, you know, like basically the party of 1999. And, um, but, but whatever price you paid for Amazon in 1999, even if you paid the highest possible price in 1999, um, you would have done well um, compared to what it is today. And that's partially because of some stuff that you couldn't have foreseen in 1999, like um, you know, the, the advent of AWS and the gold mine that it is. Um, and a bunch of other businesses that they've built. Um, so, uh, you know, in general, you could overpay for a, a superior business. And if you have a long enough time frame, the superior business will prove itself out. You yeah, will have so, to go through some pain. That's no, I think that's, that's a good, good historical kind of lesson to, and I think Microsoft is a good comp here. And that, that runs into a couple of things I think we should probably talk about, right? One is, you know, what's the moat here? What makes this a superior business, right? You know, I've used other, I've used VRBO. There's others, there's Agoda. There, there's, there's nothing stopping another platform and, and the same guy listing his house on Airbnb can list somewhere else too, right? Yeah. Uh, and they can, you know, there's a million ways to improve. I, I think, I think Airbnb has a couple things that makes them better. Um, you know, not just in the margin side, right? They have strong gross margin and everything else. I think the business, they have a great brand, right? I mean, I think they have one of the best brands. When I see when I see them at a, like an event or if I see a speaker or whatever, I'm in, I'm much more interested than a lot of others, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I mean, they, 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 
they're, they're a healthy business. I think to your point on, again, Microsoft is a good example. I think you could probably point to a bunch of things about Microsoft that made them a superior business in 99 to, to any other web or .com that popped up around the same time that didn't have, you know, the, the, the tech advantage, the superior, you know, R&D, like you, you could probably really dig in. Here, I think it's worth talking a little bit about what makes them unique and, and what's going to keep them from getting displaced. You know, Microsoft, it's hard to look through at anything through a 10-year lens. I mean, anybody can get displaced, but what, what gives them the staying power to be confident that, that even if, you know, the macro economy interest rates go up in two years from now, you know, and maybe the price drip drops, like, what makes you think they're going to have the staying power to be you know, a market leader, you know, looking at that triple in, in 10 years. Yeah. You're talking about Airbnb, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that is the, that gets to the heart of whether or not their valuation is um, worth it or not. Um, in my mind, I think that they do have um, a very strong brand recognition. It's probably the first that I think of when I think of you know, searching for a unique hotel and the other competitors, BRBO and booking.com, I would go into it if I couldn't find a, a satisfactory inventory on Airbnb or if I was price sensitive and I was just kind of trying to optimize for the best bang for the buck kind of thing. So I was, I'm, I'm looking at multiple listings, you know? Um, and I think that is a challenge because there's a lot of different reasons why people will travel. And a big part of the reasons when people are selecting their options for travel is like, like I would say a good chunk of people are actually super price sensitive when they travel, right? Um, and so that means that for consumers, there is an incentive for them to search through as many different possibilities as possible, right? So they're not just gonna search at Airbnb and then it's like one and done. If you're truly price sensitive, you'll also look at VRBO, you'll look at bookings.com, you'll look at Expedia, you know, you do random Google searches, look at standard hotel inventory near there, just like feel out your options about what the best price, the best bang for the buck would be. And that means- 40, 40 hours later, Gil's complaining <laughs> about how much time he wastes searching for properties. Exactly, there's a rabbit hole of searching to be done. <laughs> and yeah. Airbnb does not have an exclusive lock on any particular inventory. And I think as there are, you mentioned something very important, which was that um, a good a chunk now of Airbnb's um, properties, the listings on it are actually uh, professional operators, mo like owning like, I don't know, five, six, 10 mm -hmm. properties. And they're very pro professional, but those guys um, are not uh, exclusively listing only on Airbnb because that wouldn't make any sense. They're like listing their properties also on VRBO and bookings.com because if you look at the studies, um, you get more uh, stays. Um, you get an edge in stays if you list in all three versus just exclusively yeah, of in one. And so why wouldn't you? And that's what they do. Um, the people who are least likely to um, do multiple listings is actually like the small mop and mom and pop, um, uh, like the property yeah. owner who just wants to maybe even include Airbnb experiences as part of the stay. Those people might not cross shop their place with other, um, you know, 
site. Just because of the hassle. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But on the whole, you know, what, what's, what's, what's the moat here around the business? Cause if you look long yeah. lens, I think that's the biggest, that's the most important thing, right? I have a hard time, um, elucidate or, 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 or encapsulating what their long-term moats are. If I had to choose one a simple one, it's brand name recognition because it's top of mind for a lot of people. Um, but whether or not that lasts long term, um, I don't know. You remember WeWork? <laughs> I know, right? I know. We work too. Yeah, yeah. And they had, I mean, they they had probably what I would say the worst unit economics ever, <laughs> and like a fundamentally flawed business model. Um, I was just yeah, talking about but, the brand as a. Model. But their brand recognition was good. Like a lot of people had heard of yeah. WeWork. Yeah, um, and. I guess the other thing is the, the fact that they're asset light, so they can always add inventory very easily. But VRBO and bookings.com also do that as well. Um, and to a certain extent, like, um, like Expedia.com kind of does the same thing where they don't actually own the properties they sell, but they act like a, as a toll road for connecting people like the way Airbnb does. Um, so I don't really think that that's, uh, I mean, it's important to think about being asset light, but I don't think that gives them a super strong competitive advantage. Um, so, I mean, I think uh, if I remember an interview with Bill Gates from um, 2018, and they asked him, you know, he was he had offhandedly mentioned like he likes to put together a fantasy team of technology stocks that he would want to own if he could just own whatever, and they were like. Of course, you would have to follow up on that question. I mean, on that yeah. little thing. And they were like, so what you would own? And he starts like hemming and hawing and then finally spits out, oh, I would own Airbnb. And this is in 2018. And then, of course, you would have to follow up. Well, why would you mention it? And he said that his argument was that Airbnb, um, you know, the, its biggest moat against competition is the fact that they've been able to take um, a social behavior that is normally super taboo, like staying in somebody's house, a complete stranger's house, and, and like normalize it to the point where, you know, it's no big deal. And, you know, if you think about all the reasons why all the early investors said Airbnb was going to be impossible at the very beginning, those are valid reasons. I mean, you have these like nightmare scenarios where you stay at a person's place and then they, it turns out that they're an ax murderer or the other reverse situation where you stay at a person's place and it turns out you're the ax murderer and the host is unlucky. Yeah, like you can think of all sorts of nightmare scenarios, right? And for the most part, like, I don't know how long Airbnb has been operating. What is it, 10 years now? I don't know. But um, they've been operating for a while and yes, there have been horror stories. Yes, there have been like, you know, violent house parties that have wrecked properties or whatever, right? But on the whole, I mean, actually it's worked out probably much better than most people would have anticipated. And they've normalized something that you would never have thought to do before, which is just stay at a complete stranger's place. Um, and, you know, it takes a lot of work, I think, to jump that chasm between non-trust 
and trust. So in some sense, when a consumer goes on Airbnb, they're actually trusting Airbnb. To yeah, but they've, they've, they've blazed that trail. So that, that's, mm-hmm. you know, the evangelizing cost fell to Airbnb. To yes, normalize. they pioneered it. Trust. Yeah. But it's done. It's yeah. done. So yeah. I, I feel just as comfortable on a VRBO as I do on Airbnb. And I don't really think about it. And I yeah. think most people probably feel the same way. I think that, 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 that when Bill Gates was thinking about that, and I'm just kind of, you know, hopping along with that train of thought, he um, didn't think that the effect would extend to other sites. And for me, I'm not even super sure. I don't travel a lot and I've never really used VRBO. But if I had to kind of check my gut assumptions, now that I know that Airbnb is possible and that millions of people do it, you're right. There's nothing stopping me from extending that trust in a similar model to a VRBO and not thinking twice about it because Airbnb has already pioneered that. Yeah, I mean, if they were the only one that could do it, if that was the mode, then yeah, of course. But, you know, I I also think about, you you know, Hotel Tonight, have you ever used that site? Yeah, well, Airbnb bought them, so. Yeah, Yeah, so I didn't know that until I started looking at the stock uh, for the podcast, but Mm -hmm. I've played around with hotels. I think I thought that was a really cool idea. It it narrows the field dramatically. It's like, okay, here's five options, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not as price sensitive. And it's kind of like, oh, here's an interesting take. And I'm comfortable, again, it's a, it's a sleek platform. It's well executed. That's not Airbnb branded, I don't think, in any way. No. Right? Yeah, it looks people, like People are totally related. comfortable booking through there. And it's yeah. not cost conscious, I don't think yeah. at all. So it's kind of like... But those are standard hotels, not like... Sometimes. No, sometimes. They're, they're also... Well, they're not usually houses, but they're, they're, they're unique hotel situations. I would, I'd put it mm-hmm. that way. It's like, yeah, they're more the like penthouse boutique hotels. And, yeah. Boutique hotels yeah. Or, or, you know, when you search for hotels on Google maps, they're not going to come up. Um, yeah. But these could be really cool places or, or again, more unique experiences, which I think is really the key thing that they're selling. And mm-hmm. Airbnb is a unique experience. But again, I don't think that's unique to Airbnb. I think any, you could get a competitor that pops up tomorrow that offers, you know, uh, Unique, like, just pick a niche, any niche, right? Like unique big city experiences in New York, mm-hmm. right? And, and call it newyorkbnb.com. And, and I think you don't have the credibility gap that existed 10 years ago because of Airbnb. They've, they've kind of made, to your point, they've normalized the behavior. But yeah. Going forward, I don't think that's an advantage for them. I think that's a disadvantage. They've opened up, you know, the whole playing field. All right. I mean, that's true. But I mean, if you think about like, NewYorkBnB.com versus Airbnb.com. I think I might still go with Airbnb. Rather. It's a shitty name. I could do better. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's yes, it's not impossible, but it's still kind of hard to achieve the kind of um, scale and aggregation and some level of trust. Um, the for example, you know, if I'm thinking about inventory by uh, looking at uh, hotel inventory in uh, another place like um, Spain or Romania or Slovakia, I might not go on SlovakiaBnB.com because I'd be like, I don't even really trust or know these guys. <laughs> I think I'd probably go with Airbnb or maybe a VRBO or whatever. 
But basically, I need something where a lot of people have done done it before, before I trust it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, everybody's so, that way. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you could spin it up overnight. I, I, yeah. There is some marketing cost. You'd have to, like, what the hell is Trivago, right? They, they popped know, up. They're on yeah. every commercial ever for, like, the last two years. They, they're everywhere, all over. I still don't, what are they, an aggregator? It's a kayak? <laughs> no I, there's like eight I don't watch. My point is, like, you, yeah. you spend enough money, you know, promoting the brand and the credibility. I think you can get there. Right. Yeah. The same way that any new hotel chain starts. Right. Yeah. Like you can say at a Marriott or you can say at a graduate. You don't know the difference necessarily, but like those boutique brands can do great. Yeah. So I, I think you could get niche co- competition. I think there's already some competition. I think yeah. there will be more competition. And to the listing, you know, the host side, there's no disadvantage to listing in multiple sites. It's better for you. So yeah. I just don't know what's you know, you, you showed some numbers. I don't know what physically included in the pod in the S1 where you're looking at, um, you know, their retention rate for hosts, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, is that sustainable? 98%, 97%. Is that sustainable when, when you're, when now you're flooded with competition and, and you have alternative options and the hosts can post not yeah. on three sites, but 30. So, I mean, I'm, I'm go- I've moved to that, su- that page that you mentioned, which is um, the table that they showed in the S1 filing about their host retention. Um, and it's pretty high. Like if you look at the 2014 group, it started, I mean, by the time year two happened for that group, they were at 93% and then 95% the next year, 98%. They're talking about listings. 100%. Yeah. For, for people who are hosting, um, rooms well, on Airbnb. Are they hosting a room or are they listing a room? Listing, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, so to me, again, that number is always going to be 98%. There's no reason to drop your listing from Airbnb, but it yeah. doesn't mean you're hosting through Airbnb anymore. Right, right. I'd like to see a chart of that cohort, you know, projected forward five years for who's actually hosting on Airbnb versus listing on Airbnb. What's the percentage of list to host, right? Like that kind of stuff. I, I think, I don't know. I worry about competition here. Again, macro just like they've normalized this kind of behavior to your point, mm-hmm. uh, kudos to them. You know, they earned market leader position, well-deserved. Uh, but how sustainable is that going forward? Uh, that, there's yeah. no data on that. It's hard to tell. I mean, so from the game theory perspective, there, everybody who lists on a property on Airbnb <clears throat> has an incentive to not just be exclusive to Airbnb, but to list on other properties to maximize their booking revenue. And so that dynamic will never go away. You know, extending it further though, like I don't think that there would exist a thousand competitors in this space because the pie would get too fragmented, right? Like I'm I'm putting an extreme number out there Um, and scale matters. So I I think a thousand different competitors, like a thousand different Airbnbs competing in this space being that fragmented. I don't think that's likely to happen. Now, right now, there are three big competitors, right? If we're looking at Airbnb um, and then VRBO and bookings.com, those are the three big ones. And then there's like adjacent competitors like, um, you know, Google's travels and flights and Expedia.com, that kind of stuff. But really the closest competitors would be Airbnb, um, uh, bookings.com and then VRBO. Now I ask myself, is there room for more? Like, could it end up becoming five close competitors or it could be could it be like could could it go to eight or to ten and i think it's exceedingly unlikely so 
I know you're worried about competition, but what if the competition is already here and it's resulting in some sort of like stabilized oligopoly where the scale and the dynamics of the market mean that there's can only really fit like three guys on the balance beam and they're all fighting against each other, but that's it, right? And, you know, maybe you could make an exclusion for certain markets. Like, I think there's like a VRBO, I mean, uh, I think there's an Airbnb clone in China. I think it's called Meituan or something like that. And that's gotten pretty big, but that's never going to go. I don't think that's going to really go get big into like European countries or America or whatever, right? It's just domestic stay in China. So, I mean, so my, basically, I, I know you're worried about competition, but if I had to like to try to argue the, the flip side of it, it would be that, yeah, there's nothing stopping people from listing in multiple sites, but with the way like the market dynamics work, what if the max is like an oligopoly of three and that it is a stable market and the pie will grow and they'll take each take their share of the pie that is growing over time. But it's not like you got to divvy up the pie slices with more people coming in either because it's so you need a lot of scale to get to the kind of prominence and brand recognition that Airbnb has or VRBO has or bookings.com has to some extent. So, I mean, that's, um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about the dynamics of that market? Yeah. Uh, you know, how much room is there, you know, again, what, what, what are the limits, right? How, how many competitors can this balanced beam fit on it? Yeah. I, I think the concern for me is more, you know, margin, right? How much can you, you can't twist the knife. Like if you're the only platform, right? And, and you're taking, what were they taking? 15 out of every $200 through the platform mm-hmm. on both sides, give or take. I mean, you can't really turn the dial up too much when you have competition without a key differentiator there or without a significant differentiator. So you're kind of, it kind of limits a little bit, um, you know, compared to like a pin duo duo that we spoke about that can just turn the dial up and all of a sudden their, you know, their margins are 50% higher because they feel like it. Right. Nobody else can do that. Yeah. That to me, that, that is a competitive, that's a massive competitive advantage and it's, it's a multiplier on the business. I don't know if that that exists here. I think you're just looking at a new and quickly growing market. There's plenty of room for competition for sure. Uh, It just, I think it limits their ability to just, you know, determine the pricing in the same way, uh, something like a pin duo duo. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not not concerned about somebody coming in and replacing an Airbnb. There's no reason for it. They think they'd have to do dumb things to have to have that situation come up and they're not going to it's a good and spend a lot of money basically having negative gross margins just to try to yeah some sort of scale yeah yeah and i don't i don't think that's going to happen here so yeah they are going to be a market leader and yes i think this is growing i mean there are some trends on the whole right like forget covid but i think post covid you know you have uh i was doing a little bit of homework trying to figure out you know for event planning with our you know in my day job and like I think there's a big pivot away from big urban centers and that's where they make a lot of money. So like, you know, rent mm. is rent is down in New York and San Francisco and it's not just like traditional landlords who who lose there. It's it's oversupply and it's insufficient demand and that's 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 a that's a really highly profitable segment for Airbnb. And so mm. I worry about that 
you know, not in a, not in a six month trend, but in like a forever trend that there's just, you know, a change in the world. And, you know, I've talked about that internally in the business, like what's the value of our real estate in New York, you know, with our, Mm -hmm. our home office. And do we want people working remotely? And all of a sudden, like, you know, I don't know, is there going to be as much demand to travel and to be in places like New York? And, and how, you know, again, that is the most profitable component of the business. It's, it's the big city experience stuff. And, you know, that might be something that, that changes the business. So there are some other like macro trends, I think, in the travel and hospitality sector as a whole. But none of those things are, are unique to Airbnb, right? Those are things that Airbnb can, can deal with, I think, potentially better uh, than some hotel chains and others. So, you know, when you, again, coming back long, long circle to valuation, the numbers look crazy when you look at it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about whatever I was saying, thousands of times their earnings, even if the, the private valuation, you look at the, the last, what was the series F, I think they did 30 billion in 2016 or something mm-hmm. they valued around 20 billion last this summer or something. Now it's a hundred billion. Like you can, you can kind of, I mean, those sound insane, but you can kind of understand that um, just with the growth potential of this, right? And, and when you project it out and you look at it compared to like other stuff, I, I think I read, I wrote this down somewhere. They're trading, their valuation is more than what Marriott and Hilton combined, which comes yeah. to like 70 billion market cap, something like that. So, you know, it's kind of nuts. Uh, but at the same time, like, I get that. If, you, if you're going to say there's a macro trend away from urban centers, like that's bad for Marriott and Hilton too. Right. You know, that's, that's probably their most highly profitable segment as well. So right. Airbnb is better positioned. They have more distributed assets. The assets are in the suburbs as, as well as in the cities. You know, Hilton yeah. would have to open up a new hotel in Skokie, Illinois. Uh, they're they not going to do that either. <laughs> right. They're not going to do it. Yeah, of course. It makes no sense. But Airbnb has inventory there. Like yeah. They do everywhere. So I think they're okay. better positioned against that, even though I've seen that come up as a, as a negative on the business. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 you know, coming around aside from competition and, and, and competitive advantages of the business, which there are some, and I think the main one is really the brand. The brand is just fantastic. They've just done an incredible job. Um, you know, uh, just when I think of them and when I read about them and the executive team, they're just, they're very, very well positioned. And I don't think anybody, you know, there's no concern about like, there's just, there's nothing shady going on there at all. It's so transparent. The whole business is so transparent. It's very easy to, you know, to trust them and trust the economics there. But, and even though the valuation is crazy and, and you have a whole bunch of question marks about um, what the world's going to look like in a year or two, I think it's your Microsoft example, again, put on, put on 10 year, you know, put on a 10 year horizon. It's hard not to see this business doing well. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that um, you brought up a lot of good points, especially with regard to what might happen post-COVID. Um, like my thoughts about it were that when the vaccine is widely distributed, I think we're probably going to enter a period of excess. Um, people are going to want to celebrate. They're going to want to go out. They're going to want to do a lot of the things that was that they couldn't do during the time that they were, they were locked down. And to be honest, I know a lot of people have struggled um, financially during this time, and um, it'll take a long, them a long time to recover. Um, but also there's a large group of people, a large cohort of people who have actually saved money during this time because they're not going out, because they're not putting their kids to whatever school they, 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 they're, 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 
they usually would have um, because they're not eating out as much, you know, um, and because they're, they're definitely not taking any um, big vacations or a lot of traveling, right? So there's also this like big chunk of disposable income and pent up demand that is just waiting for the right moment to be unleashed. And I know that um, Airbnb's numbers um, look terrible during the uh, 2020 year, but I do think that the position to take advantage of the surge in demand um, post COVID, no matter what form it comes, right? Like if people go to the big cities or whatever, Airbnb has some inventory there. If people want to aggregate in rural areas or have experiences in the woods, Airbnb also has inventory there. Um, and that's just the near term, let's say two or three year future for them. Longer term, the concerns that you brought up are very important, which is what is the true dynamics of the market that they um, play in and how much competition can actually uh, come in. Is scale, and the, the other question to that is, does scale, as in the scale that comes from having a strong brand that everybody knows like Airbnb, is that sufficient to, to protect you against most competition from entering the market? Like, do you need that, right? And the answers to this question are a little bit murky, but they are really important for the long-term future and the stability of the market dynamics that Airbnb plays in. And I think that the hardest part about it is that when you look at the valuation of Airbnb, it's very, very easy to argue that it's overvalued because if you just look at their free quarterly free cash flow that I'm showing you here, it's up, it's down, it's losses here, up here, and it doesn't look like there's any rhyme or reason to whether or not they're making money in the quarter or not. And if you look at even uh, EBITDA numbers, they're just up and down. There's some seasonality where the summer quarters are best for get generating positive EBITDA, right? But they're making money, they're losing money quarter over quarter. And it's just hard to get a lot of like um, retrospective um, assurances in the numbers that things are gonna be fine. And I think that what's probably happening in the finances for Airbnb is that they've spent a lot of money on growth. So sales and marketing, um, the build out of their product platform, um, scaling their technology up, um, getting their name out there, um, building inventory, doing all those things that make the process, uh, making all the investments to make the process for customers and hosts um, as smooth as possible. They've spent a lot of money on that. And that is uh, accounted for as a cost on their financials. And it makes them look like they have losses. But you know, I think the accounting is a little bit outdated in calling that kind of spending a cost. In my mind, I don't view it as a cost. I view it as an investment in the future. Like when you build your, when you spend money to improve your platform so that your platform will not collapse if 10 million people hit your website all at once in a Christmas rush. Is that a cost or is that an investment in the future? I think it's an investment in the future, right? And I think they've spent a lot of money on that, on that kind of stuff. 
and it's making their financials look terrible. And <clears throat> the question is going to end up being whether or not if they continue to increase their revenues and their bookings, um, whether or not the costs will level off at some point and the revenues will far outpace the increase in costs. And then they're going to end up getting huge amounts of profit growth in the future at some level of scale beyond where they are right now. So we're, well, so I think that if I had to present what I think is the bull case for this company, it is that a promise in the future that their expenses will not rise as fast as their revenues and that they'll eventually make lots of money that way. Like if you look at these numbers here, which is the three years from 2017 to 2019, you can see that the revenue went from 2.5 billion in 2017 to um, 4.8 billion in 2019. So let's just call it, they were increasing by a billion every year, like 2.5 billion in 2017, 3.6 billion in 2018, and then 4.8 billion in 2019. But if you look at their costs, um, <laughs> they're actually roughly increasing at the same amount. So in 2017, if you add up all their costs, it's 2.6 billion. And in 2018, it's 3.6 billion, which roughly matches their revenue. And then in 2019, it's 5.3 billion, which is actually significantly higher than the revenue was. So there you could see that their expenses from 2018 to 2019 rose much faster than their revenues. Um, and if they're gonna do well, what you have to believe in is the promise that their revenues will continue to grow, uh, to grow at a particular rate. And the, whatever the costs and expenses are, they'll have to level off at some point. Um, that's the way that um, their future could look much better. So, you know, somebody will tell me, oh, it's trading at a 1000 PE or 10 times sales or whatever. And those numbers are actually not super relevant because the, if you are spending a lot of money on, you know, making sure your platform can handle 10 million hits at once when you're only doing 1 million hits, that cost makes you look like you are not making money. But what you are doing is you're investing for a future where you could do 10 times the volume that you are right now, right? And so is that really a cost? No, 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 it's kind of fuzzy, right? So, um, you know, judging the fact that you're trading at a thousand PE when, you know, you're only trading at a thousand PE because you're investing so heavily in the future um, is not like as relevant in my mind as thinking about what the future trend of the expenses and the revenues would be. Um, right. And if you kind of backed out all of the expenses that they have spent for um, like uh, basically investments, but it's called expenses, which you can't really find in these numbers, right? Because gap accounting doesn't really allow you to distinguish between the two types of expenses. Um, if you back that out, like how profitable are they really, right? Maybe they're actually a lot more profitable than we think because they're just spending so much of their money on, on willy-nilly growth. 
but yeah, I mean, you can see the just the variable costs. I mean, it, you, the revenue in nineteen, right, gives them. I think it was a 75% gross margin and their fixed operating costs, which includes sales and marketing is like 35% of revenues. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be that high going forward. Right. And, and to your point hopefully. on product development too, they have to, yeah, hopefully, you know, but like, I think we're already talking about it. They spent a lot of, a lot of money and effort, you know, uh, pioneering this market. And I think mm-hmm. that's the last five to seven years. Mm-hmm. Going forward, I think it's already commonplace. Uh, you Airbnb is is a is a verb, right? You Airbnb yeah. a place, right? Yeah. It's it's they've they've done that already. So I think some of that's built in. Product development is twenty percent of revenue, which I think as they scale, that may actually increase. Um, yeah, or because. at least stay around the same. Uh, just because I think they're going to be unique challenges. Also, like I think regulatory stuff. You you highlighted that little hidden bullet in there, but like. There's a lot of regulatory change because as this market grows, uh, everybody's going to want a piece of it, right? So they may have to adjust elements of, I don't know, the platform itself uh, to accommodate some of those changes. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I could see this, the, the development side, the product development side saying pretty similar mm-hmm. in terms of cost. But yeah, I mean, the sales and marketing at, at 34, 35%. There's it, doesn't, a it lot. doesn't need to stay that high. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. need to stay that high. And I think you, I agree you have to totally. You have to wonder, do they, you mean, and I think we know the answer to this, but do they actually have to spend that much or uh, are they deciding to spend that much? You see, because right. if they're deciding to spend that much, it's an active decision to, to grow. Um, and that expense wouldn't be considered an expense. It's actually an investment in growing the mind share for, uh, future users who hopefully will be repeat users of your platform, right? right. Um, so I think that's unnecessarily high. And if you look at, if you look at, so that was in 2019, they spent 34% of their revenues on sales and marketing, which is what I would call helter-skelter growth that mm-hmm. created a lot of um, um, loss for them, like 14% net loss off of their revenues here in 2019. But look, I think it's discretionary. A lot of it is discretionary spending because if you look at 2020, where literally it didn't make sense to try to do a lot of heavy advertising and then they cut a lot of their heavy advertising, they went from 34 to 22% spending on their sales and marketing in just a few months. So a lot of it is just discretionary spending that they're doing to try to grow as much as possible and they cut back on it. In, it's in, kind of what you difficult. what yeah. you want them to be doing, right? Yep. Yeah, and um, I think that uh, it's hard to really gauge how much of the spending truly is um, a true expense versus a growth expense, and um, the so these numbers basically, I'm just saying you can't really trust it. <laughs> in the not in the sense that they're wrong, but in the sense that they distort what actually truly is happening. Right, um, so it's not super accurate in my mind to criticize them for having a 1,000 PE because a lot yeah, of these expenses I, I, are, are under their control. Yeah. Now, and again, it's, it, it's traded like a tech stock, right? And it is a platform at the end of the day. It's and a platform. I think it's, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think that, um, you know, if you, one other thing that I wanted to, to note was, um, something very different that they do that Airbnb does. Um, 
is they've flipped the cash flow generation model um, on its head. So like a normal hotel operator, what you'll do is um, you'll book at the hotel and you'll stay at the hotel. And then you really only pay at the end, right? So you use up their capacity, you use up their services, and then the money hits their balance sheet at the end of your stay when they finally charge your credit card. Now, what Airbnb does is the opposite. When you book on Airbnb, they charge your credit card like right away. And um, they render the part of the, your money to the host afterwards. So they collect the funds, hold it for X units of time, and then disperse it only later after the experience has happened, right? Which means that they collect cash upfront as opposed to having to render services and then collect cash in the back end. Which means- Seems better. It's a lot better actually, yeah. <laughs> because um, when they grow, as in they grow their bookings, they're always generating this massive fount, fountain of cash that they're always collecting from consumers um, for the pre-booked uh, costs. Uh, and then only later do they render that money to whoever it needs to be rendered to, right? And um, that means that what I'm really trying to argue is that they have a very good cash flow generation mechanism where consumers have been um, conditioned to expect to pay for their experiences up front. Um, and that's completely different from what I would call the ass backwards model that the hotel <laughs> industry does, which is consumers do not expect to pay up front. They only expect to pay at the end. <laughs> right. And you can kind of see that in some of these like free cash flow numbers. If you look at 2016, they already were generating positive free cash flow here. Um, so they did 115 million in net cash and operating activities in 2016. Um, they spent 93 million of that 115 million on trying to purchase property and equipment, which if you think about it, isn't even, um, it isn't one of those things that's, uh, I would consider a, a, a regular expense. Like, like it's a depreciation expense and you have to replace old equipment. I think they're buying new equipment to grow bigger, right? So that's actually like a growth investment, not an expense. And anyway, but even after they spent all that money to try to, you know, build up their property and equipment, they're still at, um, where was this again? Sorry, lost the page. They're, they're, they generated 21 million in free cash flow in 2016. And fast forward to 2018, they hit this high mark of 500 million in free cash flow. Very impressive, you know? And um, 2019 was a little bit more challenging where they only made 97 million in free cash flow. The big disparity between the 2018 and the 2018 numbers, it's probably because they spread a lot more on advertising in 2019. Um, and I think that was also a conscious decision to, to, right. to spend more money um, and try to grow as crazy as possible. So, um, I guess the other couple of other things I wanted to mention um, were, if you look at this page here, this is uh, basically how uh, the CEO and founder, Brian Chesky, is gonna be compensated 
It's a very simple compensation plan. He gets restricted stock units, 1.2 million, um, every time he hits a tranche. Um, but to hit a tranche, uh, you basically, the stock has to hit a price target. So for example, the first tranche that would give Brian Chesky 1.2 million restricted stock units would be if the stock hits a price of $125 per share. The good news is, ding, as ding. of yesterday, <laughs> the stock was trading at $150 per share. So congratulations, Mr. Chesky. Um, and there are 10 tranches. Um, and the eligibility dates range from like basically um, uh, 2021 all the way up to 2030. So they're talking about 10 tranches over 10 years and there's certain price targets for each year. And if you look out to the 2030 timeframe, the 10th tranche, the last tranche of this compensation package, um, the price hurdle there is $485. So, I mean, at $150 per share, you know, if we're thinking about Brian Chesky hitting his targets, the stock would have to triple, more than triple um, from where it's trading at today um, in order for him to hit this price target. And, uh, you know, some could argue, is this, are these price targets what he considers easy price targets to hit? Or are they price targets that the on the other hand, the board of directors thought were challenging enough to merit the award of the, this compensation um, for hitting those types of things, you see? So I'm not sure what, how this was uh, set. If it was set where it was um, done where it would be easy for um, the CEO to achieve these price targets, then that's kind of implying that they think it's going to be very easy for Airbnb to more than triple from $150 per share. And actually at the time, they were I think they thought, they were surprised that it would be trading at $150 per share after the IPO, right? I think they were going to price the IPO at 75 or something like that. So um, they were thinking about if, if that's their mindset, then they would have been thinking, okay, well, we just need Airbnb to six tuple or eight tuple, right? Between now and 10 years. And that's the kind of uh, quote unquote easy hurdles that um, Brian Chesky would have to manage his way to it in order to be awarded so many restricted stock units as part of his compensation plan. But if on the other hand, this compensation plan was set so that it was actually uh, challenging then basically we're thinking that, oh man, he's gonna have to work really, really hard to like six tuple from the $75 price. Um, so I'm just putting that out there. I don't know how to really super view this. It just depends on the strength of the negotiating power between Brian Chesky and whoever was compensating him, the co compensation committee and the board of directors. But it is interesting that that, to see those stock price hurdle targets um, laid out there. It gives you an idea about what they think might be achievable or what might not be achievable. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing that I wanted to point out was that, you know, every, every company is supposed has like this um, list of risk factors. And one of the things that they mentioned as a risk factor was that they got a surprise notice from the IRS with respect to their 2013 tax year. Um, they, 
uh, I think they originally thought that they would owe 350 million in taxes for the 2013 tax year, but it says um, that <laughs> the IRS wants to increase their taxes from that year by more than 1 billion. So now they think they owe, they might owe 1.35 billion, which is actually a very big difference from what they originally thought uh, the tax liability might be for that year. Um, and I wanted to just kind of note that as a potential risk factor for the pricing of the stock. I don't think yeah, it would- but also note that, yeah, also note that it's not affecting the go forward. It's not like a, a new tax rate. It's just the 2013 taxes, yes? Yes, yes, exactly, okay. yeah. So if there's some quirk of that particular tax year where something, there's a very big disagreement between what they think they owe and what the IRS thinks that they owe. And the settlement of that could either affect the stock positively or negatively, right? Because if it um, ends in um, a lesser than expected liability, then the stock would go up because you would think that it's nice to just have this settled and put behind us rather than having hanging over our head. And wonder how many investors are aware of this at all. Yeah, it's, it's buried a, in a 300 page report in a bullet in the appendix. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, it, the, yeah, the S1 filing is over 300 pages. And this risk factor here was the last risk factor mentioned in a whole list of like two or three pages of other generic risk factors. And they just Pretty got hilarious. that in at the end. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I, mean, to be honest, I, I don't I don't think that would affect the share price at all. I, I think most people don't are are baking. It would it would be a surprise. Like let's say I, I think the the general assumption is they're not going to end up owing the extra billion dollars of taxes, right? Uh, and and or they and settle for sudden, some fraction, or they settle or something and they'll get buried. I, I think either way, it's not going to affect the share price very much. Yeah, and they have four billion in cash as of. Um, a couple months ago. So um, yeah. it's not going to bankrupt them for sure. Um, and it's just a one-time thing. So actually, just a billion dollars. Yeah, it's just a billion dollars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So um, I guess we're close to the point where we might have to render some decisions. What do you think? I feel like I've gone first every time. I, I, want, I want you to go first, Gilmore. What's your, what's your, what's your move? <sighs> All right. I'm going to go first. Um, I think that I like the business. Um, it's love not, the business. Uh, I, I don't. I, I didn't say I love the business. I said I like the business. There are a lot I of things. <laughs> okay, I think that there's a lot of things that are challenges for it in in the future, but it is a very strong business, and it's got a um, a very strong brand name, and that's probably one of the harder things to try to replicate. Um, and they have huge scale and huge inventory in a lot of countries. And I think that, I mean, if you look at their gross margins, it's a great, it's actually, it's a very asset light, really great business. It's acts kind of like a toll road on uh, travel and ex travel experiences. And I think in the near term future, there's so much pent up demand post COVID uh, to travel, to see places, to have great experience, to kind of live life, right? Rather than this dull gray drab lockdown that we've been in. Um, and so I, I think that they're, they're going to make a lot of money in the post-COVID period. And um, the biggest challenge for me is that their IPO popped 
And, you know, they think they more than doubled that first day and they're at over 100 billion market cap. And the question is whether or not, you know, you got to handicap it is 100 billion um, a good price for you to be able to get into, right? Um, given kind of all of the other handicaps of the business. And um, I think for me, and there's also the, the financials too, which kind of mask the underlying strength of the business because a lot of the um, expenses, you, you don't know if they're really truly growth um, in investments or growth expenses um, or if they're true expenses um, that are kind of like one-time things that really should be treated like expenses. So, um, you know, I think what I would like to do is wait a little longer. So I'm not gonna buy Airbnb right now um, and not at the $150 price. Um, what I would like to do is, or my game plan is, I still would like to own a piece of this business, just not maybe at the $150 price, but I could change my mind if um, a, like two quarters from now or uh, maybe three quarters from now, uh, as I keep watching, you know, what's going on with it. If I could see their expenses flattening while the revenue continues to rise, then I think that's when I would want to, feel, I, I would feel more comfortable about buying in. Um, I think you're, you're gonna, yeah, go ahead. Even if it's at a higher price than today, I'd be willing to pay that price um, uh, like higher than 150, as long as I could get some certainty about where the revenues and expenses are tre trending. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you uh, completely. Uh, my, my stance was to wait. Uh, my, my concern is you're going to miss the boat on this one because it's not going to go down. There's not going to be a significant <laughs> yeah. dip. It's just going to keep going up. Yep. I, I, this is what it is. And, and the pent up demand is, is reality. Yep. Next year, all the news will be positive. The vaccine, the this, the travel picking up, the airlines, everything's going to be trending positive. Airbnb is going to ride the shit out of that. Oh and, yeah. And that, and that company is going to, you know, you're, you're going to be trading over 200, not too yeah. long from now. So, and, and you know what? Everybody knows it too. Cause everybody yeah. knows the vaccine's coming and everybody yeah. knows that at some point, I mean, a, stupid a lot of that optimism. Are. Yeah. A lot <laughs> yeah. of that optimism is baked into the IPO pop, right? Yeah. It's, it's not, yeah. it's yeah. not baseless. It's not like, you know, it's not, it's not February right now, you know, right. like people understand yep. that, that you're catching an upswing. So that there is a, penalty there's there's a tax to wait on the sidelines here you know you're not going to get better pricing at least i don't think you're going to get better pricing yeah, it's unlikely. a million things can yeah. change yeah it's very <laughs> unlikely to get better going. pricing um and to your to to your point i don't actually think i need the assurance that they can keep their that they can reduce the expenses and see mm -hmm. the continued growth i think the continued growth is almost a given right mm -hmm. like the the the, the number the you look at the charts i've got my graphs here too like this is a huge and very quickly growing market. It's amazing. And, and mm -hmm. to their expenses, again, I think the platform, the technology costs, maybe though the ratio stays the same, they don't need to spend as much marketing and building the brand. The brand's built. The, right. the, 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 the world has been pioneered here to do this stuff into, into, you know, other, to your point, the taboo element of other people's homes, all that work's been done and spent, you know, it took a lot of money and it's been done. So you know, I would expect it to go down. I would be, it's a question of would I rather buy it now 
and find out later that they can't actually get those expenses down, that they need to spend that to keep the market share and to keep their host retention and to keep their guest retention. Yeah. Then, okay, that would be bad, but I don't think you're going to get punished for that. You don't think think you buy. No, I think you buy at 150 Mm -hmm. and the stock will climb. And mm-hmm. if it turns out in your three quarters from now, two, three quarters from now, that their expense ratio is the same, they're spending 35, 36% on, on sales and marketing, you think the stock's going to go down? I think it's still trading over 200. Yeah. Maybe, so so maybe, there's no risk. You know, I, I just don't think, <laughs> I, I don't think the risk, just because the, the revenues, the growth and revenue numbers are going to be so high. To your, to, with this explosion of everything, right. people are going to be looking at, at Airbnb and saying, Holy crap! Like this isn't a hundred billion dollar company. This is a five hundred billion dollar company, right? And, and that's a lot not, for this company. Yeah, it's huge. But yeah. but look look at your comp plan. I mean, that's a ten yeah. year plan. And and yeah. I think people do invest with, you know, five plus seven plus year timeline horizons. Not everybody's yeah. a, a flipper here. This is a long term hold. It's a great business. And I think at the end of the day, this podcast, like the whole thing, comes down to. You know, are we evaluating whether this is a great company or not? Or are we evaluating whether this is a good price? Right. And I mean, and both. They're, not the, they're not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. But they're, they're not different the same things. Thing. Yeah. 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 And, and like, would I recommend Airbnb as a great stock to own? Absolutely. And would I want them in any portfolio I'm building? Absolutely. The only question is at what price does it make sense? And are there better places to put your money? Right. right. We've covered some incredible stocks. Right? I don't know what happened with, uh, Pin Duo Duo today, it's up what, set to almost 20% to 16, 17%, something like that. Today. Yeah, I mean, I, I, haven't, what... I haven't been following, but but yeah, I think um, it's green in the portfolio. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe tied to, yeah, maybe tied to the Alibaba investigation. I don't know, but you know, yeah. to me, that's a great business that was at a good price, right? And 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 the same reason we we sidelined Palantir. It's a great business. I just didn't understand the price, right? Yeah. I, I didn't, I couldn't get a handle on the valuation. This is one where I can get a handle on the valuation. I don't like it, but yeah. I still think it's a low risk buy. So uh, coming into the pod, honestly, I was sitting, in, I'm, this is a sit and wait for me and just wait, but like, I'm not waiting to see something. I'm not waiting to see the expenses go down or to see the, you know, the revenue pop. Like I, I'm pretty much assuming that's going to happen. Um, yeah. And I think the rest of the world is too. Yeah. I think I'm waiting for the price to go down which seems stupid because it's not going to, I don't know what the only thing that would make the price go down would be, you know, raising interest rates or something like that, or, you know, a new strain of COVID that's killing everybody and the vaccine doesn't work or there's just, it would take something pretty globally devastating to lower the price. And so to sit on the sidelines to just hope you can buy a dip, it's not a good move. And if you're looking long-term and you're, if you're expecting some of these things and you have a 10 year horizon, I think this is a good candidate for a triple, you know, maybe even a quadruple. It's aggressive, but you know, it's a huge, huge market. And I think the major trends are pointing in this direction. All of the hotels, like everything's moving in this direction. Like I, I think people Airbnb before they even look for a hotel in the future. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and again, just all the reasons we talked about to give them um, maybe not a competitive advantage within the space, but a competitive advantage to alternatives. Uh, you know, they could just completely dominate. So I, I would say, I would say I'm a soft buy. I'm actually changing my opinion just to make it interesting. I would say I would buy, I, I would, maybe, I would maybe not dollar cost average, but I'd start to take a small position and, and maybe the stock does fluctuate a little bit. Maybe there's some, uh, 
you know, a pullback from the over exuberance post IPO or whatever, and you can get slightly better pricing. But I think if you wait around hoping for the price to get below, you know, below 120, below 100, like you're, you're never going to catch it. And then you're just going to be sitting there and regretting not owning any of it. So That's I'd rather buy I've a little bit. A lot. <laughs> I've done that a lot. I've done that more times than I haven't. So right, right, I'd right. rather own a little piece, you know, and maybe buy a little more. And if the stock goes down, great. I can buy some more. And if the stock goes up, great. You know, I, I, I don't think it's a high risk candidate for a bubble, you know, a, a bubble casualty. This is not right. that kind of business. This is a strong business, strong gross margin, asset light, like you said. Yeah. Uh, and it's a toll booth. And, and that to me, I remember one of the first times you and I ever spoke about like ideal businesses. It's a yeah. toll booth. And yeah, they take it from both right. sides. Yeah, they both take sides. It from both sides. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I just, the, I love the business. If you look at the economics of it, they do take money from, from both sides, like $3 from the, or 3% from the host, and then um, something like 12% from the guest. Now, yeah. one other thing though. Okay. So going back to Brian Chesky's conversation plan. Let's say that it is, it's got some like magic predictive powers for what the, I'm saying that with like a grain of salt, right? For, for, so magic predictive powers for the, uh, the stock price in the future. You know, the 10th tranche is due on November 10th, 2030, which is, you know, roughly 10 years from now. And, you know, if the price is 485 for the stock 10 years from now, that's a triple, which is good. But if you run the compound interest formula on it and you think from today buying it at 150 and it goes to 485 in 10 years that's 12 percent compounded annually yeah it's not fantastic it's not fantastic now here's the thing if it was trading at 60 dollars per share which is like roughly where they thought the ipo was gonna come out at it would work out to 23 percent compounded annually and now Much that better. That's a lot more interesting to me, okay, mathematically speaking. And um, so in my mind, you know, if I buy it 150 and it hits 485 in 10 years, it's a good result, but it's not a home run result. And I'm looking for a home run result with the kind of risks that we're taking here. Does that make sense Mm -hmm. for me? Yeah. Yeah. So I see it a little differently. I don't think of it, I, I don't think... You are definitely paying a huge premium, right? You're paying a huge premium, but I don't think it's a high risk investment. It's not like, it's not like you're, you're picking one horse in a big race. Like these guys own it. Like you're not going to be unhappy with this stock 10 years from now. And Mm -hmm. whether it's 10% compounded or 20% compounded, and we don't know if the sky's the limit, right? You're talking about a $500 billion business, give or take what 450 or something 10 years from now, Mm -hmm. like, that's a huge number. That's a huge number, but it's not, it's not insane. Right. And if it did no, have predictive ability, Gil, they've yeah. already undershot by almost 20% from where they thought they would be. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So like we, you know, we don't know, we don't know what the growth potential is, especially, you know, they've shown they're, they're somewhat acquisitive, right. They can buy up some other businesses. They mm-hmm. could buy some adjacent businesses. They could get into, you know, uh, I don't know, put them in anything in the travel and hospitality ecosystem, right? And all of a sudden, you know, that, that gives them much more market potential. And again, with that brand, there's nothing they couldn't do, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, think, I think to me, it's a low risk investment and it's a brand and a company that I'm happy to own through some turbulence. Uh, and yeah, granted, it may not have the, 
rocket ship uh, return that you might see with like, you know, if, if you could get in at the IPO price, which still bothers me, by the way, as, as just a tr- standard retail investor that like yeah. that this whole system is rigged to make sure you're paying the most possible premium. Um, but but yeah, I, I don't think that that's that should be enough of a reason not to buy you know, just because, you know, uh, that you're, you're looking at maybe you know, a 12 or 13% compound growth rate over a 10 year period. Mm-hmm. You, if you, if you lock that in again, it's not that exciting. I agree with you. I think you have more potential in some of these upside stocks. Certainly, you know, we went through square to me, square is one that has, you know, I, what was the CAGR we came up with there is like 20. It was north of 20. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. There's That's exciting. Those. Yeah. Right. And that, and we took a, we both took a position there. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't mind here. To be honest, I think I think Airbnb may have less volatility than Square, right? In a That's weird very way, possible. Like yeah. That, yeah, and so to to lock in, you know, as a safer, ironically, <laughs> as a safer investment over a long term period. Like I'm not looking at a one year or a three year return here because God knows what can happen with this business. But yeah. a ten year horizon, uh, I, if you told me, look, you can only own one of these companies, Airbnb or Square, ten years from now. I think I might take Airbnb just to be safe. That's I think Square has yeah. a lot more potential, right? But it has a lot more competitors. Yeah, no, yeah, a lot more competitors. They can get displaced. More. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot more attack surfaces to totally to, to attack. Square totally, we we made a bunch are. of assumptions with mm-hmm. Square, in, including like their their cash app. Like, yeah, that could be gone if you told me the cash app doesn't exist anymore. Then I, there's no reason for me to own Square of cash. Why app. do I own Square at all? And to be honest, that that's upward. You know, that's not a one percent chance. That's probably. 10% plus that, that, you know, cash app is non-existent in three years. Yeah. I mean, right? PayPal, PayPal has been re- surging pretty hard with yeah. their application. So you can see a lot of competition heating up. In that For space. sure. And there's, there's, there's less of a moat there than there is with Airbnb. To your point, there's only so much room yeah. on the balance beam in this space, which in, in Square's case for the cash app, that's not true. You could have a billion, right? So I don't know. I, I think Airbnb is a safer, I, and I keep saying ironically because it's priced to the moon, but it's, it's mm-hmm. a somewhat safer investment over a longer term horizon. Uh, then I think a lot of the other ones that that have more home run potential, but maybe a lot more risk baked in to attack surface is a good word. There's just a lot of other ways these companies can get jammed that I don't think Airbnb, Airbnb is susceptible to. I mean, they just went through the worst possible situation yeah. that a travel and hospitality company can go through yep. over all of 2019, basically. Yep. And they're coming out roses. So yeah, yeah I, I, I think I'm going to take a small position uh, really small, uh, and just try to try to get in in bits. Maybe get a dip here, a dip there. But I think sitting on the sidelines and waiting for more data points is unnecessary. Okay, fair enough. I, I understand your points, and they make sense. I'm not gonna say that they they are completely crazy. And sometimes it is good to, you know, dollar cost average into a stock, um, especially if you really believe that the return is good enough at the current price point. Um, and that you'd be willing to take um, some sort of downside if like some random things happen um, and just hold and continue to buy. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I think I, I'm still gonna, I'm gonna wait a little bit on this one. And um, I think that the hard, hardest part is you know, I'm, I'm basing that 12% return based on like the magic stock prediction price, right? 
of Brian Chesky's um, compensation plan. But, I love that you found this and that's yeah. how we're basing yeah, this. <laughs> it's like somebody it's, put a finger in the wind. The, <laughs> meanwhile, this is probably like made by an intern or made by Brian Chesky himself, just so that yeah. to engineer it so that it's super impossible for him to not to to to, to not hit these goals, right? These are yeah, like these are like these are like one inch hurdles, not like one foot hurdles. Uh, if that's the case, then maybe it, you know the true underlying reality is ten years from now it's not four eighty five. It's like I don't know nine hundred or something like that, right? right. But um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not super sure. The I do. I mean, in the near term, they they will do well once COVID um, goes away. Um, so um, but until then, there's going to be. I'm just, I'm, I want to like, I do, I still do really want to feel like the numbers make sense in terms of the, um, the expenses. So um, while you do present a compelling argument, I think I'm going to hold off on buying this for just a little bit longer, but I do. Howard. It's a very good <laughs> business. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I love busting your balls. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's hard. You know, <clears throat> the, uh, when I look back at some of the companies that we've talked to about, we talked about Square, we talked about Peloton, we talked about Palantir, uh, and I think we talked about Pinduoduo. And I, I think I ended up deciding to buy, um, um, what was it, uh, Square and Pinduoduo. And, um, but the ones that we didn't decide to buy, which was uh, Palantir, and Peloton, those haven't done too badly, you know, uh, anyway, right? Like, I think- I Yeah, think, and it's not like we didn't like them. Yeah, it right? was really- I We liked like, both companies. We just was, didn't like the price. Yeah, it was the price that, uh, that, that, that kind of stopped me for, on, on a couple of those situations, especially for the, um, the Palantir situation. I think I was waiting for it to get cut in half. Um, yeah. And then for Peloton, it was trading at what, 60? And I didn't think it could get to its like big, hairy, audacious goals. And then I think it dropped down to like a hundred, which would probably be a good buy point, but I didn't buy in at that time anyway. Um, oh yeah, mostly because I was, I was, I was front running the S&P for Tesla. So all, all my capital was, was soaked up. But, the, uh, um, but that would have been a good buy price because I think it's now at 150, 160 back again. So that would have been the dip to buy if you really wanted to get into Peloton. And then, yeah. Um, yeah, I think Palantir was at 15 when we were talking about it. Now it's in the 20-something range, 25. Yeah, which is crazy. And Palantir, I still, I, I can't, not to revisit. I just, I can't, it's very hard to understand, uh, to understand that business. It's yeah. very tricky. It is, it is. I, I still am on the fence a lot when I think about that company because of just the long sales cycle and the fact that they say that, oh, no, we're just a, easily deployable SaaS, but you look at it and it's like three months to deploy. And I'm like, that's not a, that's not an easily deployable SaaS, you know? Yeah. Maybe it is in the fields that they're not talking about, but I don't know, it doesn't feel quick or easy. So anyway, yeah. uh, that's where well, we're at. That was a good episode. That was a good one. Another one in the books. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't wait. I can't wait for this bad boy to drop 80% tomorrow. <laughs> you, I will be borrowing money to, 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 to buy it if, if that's the case. You know what I'll be doing if it drops 80%, which is not going to. It's probably going to go up 20%. So we'll see. All right. 
Uh, always a pleasure Gilmore yeah thank you for the insights and uh I you know I probably won't we won't do an episode this is going to be the last episode for this year right so we probably won't talk until the the new year so happy new year talk to you next year buddy happy new year happy holidays and to all of our listeners (laughs) (laughs) all all none of them except for us all all zero (laughs) if you hear this if you made it to the end of this podcast Call yeah. me, <laughs> send us an email, and I will give you yeah. one share one, of every one, stock. One Bitcoin. <laughs> one, yeah, oh, that's right. a lot. That's actually one, a lot. One, yeah, that's way too much. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Dude, yeah. don't, don't obligate me. Yeah, no, I'd yeah. say one, one share of every stock we've covered. I think that's a, that's a good deal. Yeah, yeah.